if you don't work well with other teams, everyone else's problems will become a product problem. Welcome back to our bite-sized 40-minute mentor startup spotlight series. Today, we're joined by James Routledge, VP of product at Converge. James has deep experience in the world of product, including helping a NASDAQ business go from $100 million to $250 million revenues and working with 400-person Series B businesses, rebuilding and maturing their product organizations. There was nobody better suited to dive into the world of product than James, so we are super excited that he decided to join us for this special episode. So, James, thank you for being here today. How are you? Very well, thank you, James. Love the name, by the way. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, it's a pleasure to catch up again. I think we always like to start off by uh, understanding a bit more about your background. So do you mind giving us a whistle-stop tour through your CV and share a bit more about how you got into product in the first place? I actually started my career, the first five years of it, as an engineer. So I was in software, I was technical, got up to about principal level. So I was able to make architectural decisions in a reasonably fast-moving company that was dealing with millions of users every week. But I started making too many business decisions, and so I actually got pushed into product because I did more than I was supposed to in technical. And so they gave me this, at the time, quite new role. I was then very lucky because I got mentored by a person called Marty Kagan. Marty Kagan in product land is quite famous because he was the product person behind eBay, building their products. And for people as old and with enough gray hair as me, he also did Netscape Navigator back when browsers actually had a few more players in the market. So um, from that, I then was quite lucky. I got to help take a company from sort of MVP up to a half billion dollar exit. So I was a product person that got given too much responsibility, became a product leader. Stepped out of that and became a venture capitalist. So I was a VC for a number of years, which enabled me to actually learn product strategy and get onto a few boards. And after that time, I then went into the market as an entrepreneur. And I've been a sort of serial entrepreneur, chief product officer, building businesses that have been acquired or exited or or failed sometimes. And then, as you say, more recently, I have tried to think about where I could be most impactful. And so Converge is a business that's both in construction but climate. And I'm really keen on having an impact there. I think product people can really be instrumental in helping us with that problem. Amazing. What a CV you have. A really interesting blend of experiences and skills you've picked up along the way and definitely are a product guru. I'm sure that we're going to have lots of listeners contemplating moving into a product role or are currently progressing through their product career. So from your experience, what would you say are the qualities and traits that make someone successful in a product role? So I think there's probably three that are more of a mindset piece. Product can be quite a complicated role. And so I rather think about how does a person feel and think about it, whether they're considering getting into it, do I want to work like that, or whether they're trying to reach excellence in it. And those three areas, from my perspective, are they need to have an innate curiosity. Product people, it sounds silly, but they have to care. They really have to be excited about what customers want and need. And that's really hard for most of us because the most important person to most of us is ourselves. And if you want to be really great at product, it's not about you anymore, right? Ignore what they say in Silicon Valley. If you can do this for 100 million people, it's definitely not just you. And so that curiosity is really important. The other part, second part, is a bias for action. So the real challenge with product is you have to spin a lot of plates. 
whether you are at the more junior level or all the way up at a chief product officer. And so you have to be willing to take action and get things done yourself. And that includes making those decisions. So you can't sit in paralysis. Some people say in the middle of their careers might be drowning in data. That's a luxury. That's quite a nice thing. Whether you have it or not, though, you still have to make decisions. And that bias for action is the other part that's really, really important. So you need to be able to have both the curiosity and the ability to get things done. With the last part being, you actually need to have quite a lot of humility. And again, I know these are very, very broad things, but it's really important to point out that if you are a person either, well, again, all the way up the stack in product experience, half the stuff is not going to work. Google used to have a rule, which is that half the things we do are not going to work and we don't know which half, right? And that's what separates people who really want to start thinking about products and people want to progress in product to make the step, the big jump. Because if you start by going, I know half of what I do isn't going to work and I have the kind of the humility and the vulnerability to approach that, I'm going to try and do twice as much because I still need to achieve my goals, right? The company still told me I have to do something. This is going to help. Everyone who can't do that last one is essentially in a non-product manager mindset, in a project manager mindset. They're just delivering things. They don't care whether they work or not. And that's a big distinction. That is super interesting and helpful. I guess for anybody that may be new to the product world or outside it, but intrigued by it, can you share a bit more about the the scope and responsibilities that you can expect from the different stages of seniority in the product or that'd be really helpful i think yeah of course and i help companies out a lot so if ever people want to try and redefine that this is not me trying to pitch as a consultant it's a hard question you're asking james so i always say look i've got public progression frameworks i can talk to the different ways this can work because if you're in a hardware company, that's a very different way of thinking about that product progress versus, say, a consumer social network, which is just going viral. In my eyes, the way that I would think about those levels are about how much autonomy and responsibility you're given. So a person just getting started in this will need to be able to, say, take a roadmap or a list of things that the business said were important and tr- deliver them and just try and get there, Right. The person at the next level up is likely going to be able to define a roadmap. So if we said, hey, you get to pick, we do need to try and solve some of these problems. You know, we need to double revenue, for example. What would you put on a roadmap that can maybe double revenue for us? And you're able to actually at the next level of autonomy, right, decide what might be possible. Remember, half of it's not going to work. So you jumped up to a bit more accountability as well. And then at the very, very top, And this is just obviously one lens of many lenses we could talk about. But at the very, very top, you'd be able to decide what that demand was, right? Someone made the decision that we're going to double revenue. And that was a choice. It might have been that we should have halved churn instead. Or it could be that we should really be looking at the lifetime value of our customers. And those are all decisions that a CPO is starting to have to make. And if you make the wrong one, everything cascades the wrong way. So at the highest level, you effectively are able to shape the outcomes of the business through the product. I guess you mentioned CPO there. I mean, when you look at back to your own progression up to that CPO level, what are some of the things that you would have liked to have known before making that ultimate step up? And is there any particular advice that you wish you'd have been given by other CPOs in your network that could have helped you on that path? Yeah, so I think there's a two part to that, in my opinion. One part is 
you're not the CPO. And the other part is you are the CPO in terms of that progression. So let's say you're not the CPO. It sounds so cliched, but the single most important part is actually having a mentor. And normally, if you're not the CPO, that mentor is your boss, the head of product, VP of product or CPO. And you have to respect this person. If you think this person is not very good at doing product, you should find another place to work because it it will transform your career. Product is a very complicated and unstructured career path. And I can tell you, knowing many CPOs, some of them are CPOs today of a business that say has 10,000 staff and they have 400 reports. I know that for a few of them, their next job was at a 20 person company because it's all product work, right? At one point they were trying to move the, the tanker and do it with a meta product strategy. The other level is product market fit, but it's all customer work and really, really great product people are shifting around all over the place. As someone, James, who's I'm sure placing CPOs all the time, you can see that they're a crazy bunch. And so to actually have a great coach, a great mentor in products when you're not the CPO is pivotal. And finding that person is almost the single most important thing in your career. So if you're looking for the next role, I wouldn't say, is it a B2B or a B2C? I would say, can I meet who'd be my future boss? That would be the first thing I would want to do. And then I would want to know, do I respect this person? Can I learn from this person? If it's yes, yes, then look at the product, then look at the company, then look at the other stuff that you probably want to do by default, because obviously your behavior is to try and find a cool place to work, so to speak. That's one part of that. On the other flip, you are the CPO. What would you have needed? So I've for context, I've been in the role of chief product officer, irrespective of the job title, for about five to six years now. And I've done that in a number of places. There isn't a boss for you, right? You are the boss. And normally, if they have to hire a chief product officer, which most companies will, it's because actually the boss, the, the person above you, can't do product. That's why you're brought in. And that can be quite a lonely place. And Actually, one of the things I've done to solve that problem for myself, because I had this problem for a long time, is I actually built a community around myself. So there's a thing called product land that people can find if they look at my LinkedIn. It's one of many things, right? But the point is, when you're at the top, realistically, a business coach isn't going to tell you something new. Your peers are the only people who can hold you accountable. And so if you've got all the way to being a CPO, a chief product officer or a VP of product, what you actually need is 5, 10, 15 people like you around you that you can talk to about the problems because no no one in your business is going to know how to answer them, right? But other people through proxies can help you figure it out because at the end of the day, part of your job is to figure it out. That's a big, big thing that European people also struggle with quite a lot. In the US, it's a far more embraced network effect, especially in product. But yeah, specifically, the skill is very new here, right? In European product is 10 years old, maybe seven. All the more reason to have communities like yours and to lean into that peer mentorship. I mean, we talk all the time on this podcast about the value of, I guess we're 40 minute mentors. So the value of mentorship in your careers and the you know exponential impact getting the right mentors can have. And then this goes across all the sort of C-suite roles. You do get to that point where it is lonely and you do need support and the best place for that is amongst your peers. So I'd really encourage, I think there is a bit of a British thing sometimes to not ask for help and kind of just struggle on through. Whereas actually I've seen for myself having kind of fallen into that trap before, being worried about being seen to be weak or not good enough by asking for help. I've got over that now and 
by being in a founders community, I've had some of the most enlightening conversations that have helped me with running this business, you know, more than any other in a way. So yeah, I really would implore everybody to take heed and particularly product leaders out there to check out Product Line because it's a great community. With a lot of key leadership and strategic roles, product has evolved significantly over the last few years. As you say, in Europe, it's a relatively new position. So I'd love to see, as somebody that's kind of been at the the forefront of this, what are some of the most significant changes that you've seen? And how do you see product evolving over the coming years? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So if we wind back for context, I'm 37, so I've been doing this a, a while. It's been interesting to see the eras, right? And I think you need to look at the change in context. So I remember when pre-2010, a lot of what we talked about then was the era of the tester. And that meant that suddenly quality became a piece of the journey. QA is quite new as well, right? And you know, before that, we built nice big oil tanker type technology platforms in frameworks, and we pushed a big red button at the end and shipped them. So with the tester also came Agile. And I think, I know that's very, very far down in the detail, but it's really important because with the era of the tester, came the empowerment of the CTO, which was kind of the thing before the CPO, right? They were, again, quite new, if you're looking at a 20-year span, because you know, technology moves so fast. And so what happened in the boardroom is that we used to just throw things into delivery, hope it worked, annual release cycles. Then these CTOs came along, and suddenly we were able to talk about things like Agile at the boardroom. So strategically, we went, can we do things in iterative ways? Maybe we can ship a smaller version of something, or maybe we can break our product into bits and like ship bits of them. And that was a massive change globally for how we wanted to de-risk the value we create for our customers. But most of the time, it was still, what do we as a business think is the right thing to do? Now we've got a slightly more flexible, less brittle way of doing it. And with the QA point, we suddenly realized that the things we put out were a bit better. Realistically, though, product was still owned by the CEO or the strategic people in the business, and they would only ever build for themselves. And so what's happened with this chief product officer role, and I would argue that chief product officer has only really properly been around for about five years. Previously, there was a leader in product. They had no board access. They had no ability to change what the CEO wanted, and they were essentially just doing a fundamental middle management role. In the last five to seven years, the customer has become king. We've talked about it for 20 years, but many people could still make a lot of money and not be customer-focused at all, let's be honest, right? That doesn't work anymore. In B2C, the entire world revolves around the quality of an experience you give, right? And now in B2B, because of how we've built so much software, I can change from Microsoft Teams to Slack in one day for an organization of a thousand people, right? So the switching cost has gone through the floor, which means the experience has now risen up. And therefore, in both B2B and B2C, customer is king, queen, person of note, right? And so now the CEO has sort of looked at this and gone, we actually need someone to own this. And we need a strategy around how we can be competitive with this. And that's where the chief product officer works, right? And when it works really, really well, the role has now kind of evolved to this point where at the boardroom, there's the customer, which I don't think has happened in nine out of 10 businesses. We have to discount the Amazons of the world, right? It's nice that the 0.1% have done it and they made multi-billion dollar businesses. 
Now, every business must do it. And that's a completely different way of thinking about this. And so it's really hard, if I'm honest, to hire for this role. And to answer your question in terms of how crucial is it, it's become probably pivotal. How it's evolving strategically is that I think boards and leadership teams are learning the difference between a great CPO and a the previous generation of CPO. Because it's actually, that's probably one of the, like it used to be probably the chief revenue officer could push around the CEO's opinions to help him build the right business. But most other people, unless they controlled the entire PL, couldn't do it. Now there's another one that can say, I know you're drawing to build the strategy. I see where you're going. I'm wanting to be here to challenge you. And I'm going to do it in a way that could affect the entire business. And that's how that's evolving now. Fascinating. What a great time to be in product, I guess, for anyone that's listening to this, that is maybe starting out on that journey, just the impact you can have and yeah, what you can create for customers. I can really see what a rewarding career it is. Challenging, as you said, complex for sure, but certainly very rewarding and very impactful. With that in mind, uh, of course, product has to interact with other functions. And what's your view on how product does sort of interact with those other functions? How crucial is that cross-functional aspect to getting product right? Yeah, so product manager, senior product manager, product leader, you end up being in the middle, right? Because you're so tied now to the success of the company. It also means that if I'm honest, product picks up the check. And that means that so many things become a product problem. If you don't work well with other teams, everyone else's problems will become a product problem. And so it becomes really important that you work well. I would say that every company has communication problems, right? Like it's a classic communication is one of our challenges. Unfortunately, it's probably the big one that product has to solve as a spear point. So if you are not doing this well, which you can either call communication, stakeholder management, or role intersection, you will be in excruciating pain. And it's actually a key piece of product leadership, I would say. I mean, really great product managers early in their career can do this, but it's a really important piece that product leaders need to do in a business to say, here's how, for example product works with customer service. You sit down with the leader of customer service and you just say, what do you need from me? And then you say, here's what I need from you, right? And you do that with commercial, you do that with, you do that with engineering, you should have an answer anyway, but you you should do it with everything. And what's really important in framing this, James, is I'm gonna be honest with you, it's gonna be a confrontational conversation, right? You are gonna sit down and actually at the end of that conversation, product is gonna need to say, look, I'll be honest, we're having this meeting because we're not aligned. So it's not surprising that we've had a bit of a difficult conversation. But what we can do now is propose what we do next. And hopefully it will get better. I'm not telling you I can fix this problem. It's too hard. But what we can do is invest the time together. And if leaders in the business kind of do that well, then the role intersection will mean that not all the problems (laughs) sit in one camp which is the risk, right? No one wants that to happen. What you want is every piece is taking on the autonomy to work. Product shouldn't be like the gatekeeper. That's when the whole thing falls apart. Product should be the cheerleader, so to speak, and interface well, so that the role intersection means that it empowers other functions, right? That's your lagging indicator of success. If every other team feels empowered by product, it's successful. And whenever I'm in a business, I explain to the entire company, like, Everyone works for the product, right? Everyone works on the product. 
it's not product, right? But we can help you. And if you feel like it's not there, then we aren't helping you. So let's have the conversation. Yeah, great advice. Thank you, James. You all know that we are huge believers in power of mentorship and also community, which is something we've tried to build in different forms over the last 11 years. You are a community builder who is doing a lot for product leaders out there. And there are going to be people listening to this that are feeling somewhat isolated or stuck in their current role, particularly if they're in product. So what advice do you have for them? I assume one of them is to join a community like yours, but we'd love just to hear if there's anything else you think anyone, if there's anyone that really needs to hear this right now, what would you say to them? Yeah, so let's do again the the CPO and the non-CPO, right? So with the CPO, I'll be honest, I don't know someone who isn't, as you defined, right? It's a hard job. So that person can reach out to me as a simple activity because I build that connection globally. And whether it's a European community, US, APAC, whatever, there's people I can introduce. And if people just want to go to the de facto, mind the product exists. It's very easy to find. And it's a great resource that people can just plug into. It's not specifically for CPOs, in my opinion. It's an incredible resource, though. So the first thing is find people like James. We're easy to find if you want to find us and we'll help. Because I'll be honest with you, at the CPO level, it's tough. There aren't many of us, let's be honest, James. And therefore, it's a little bit difficult to map, right? So I'm happy to be there. And if not, there are lots of public speakers in product that also have this power. If you're not in product and you're in a lot of pain, so to speak, I think it's really important to actually critically ask why. Because a default action could be, this is rubbish, I should find my next role. And when people come to me with this problem, I normally say to them, it shouldn't be what you're running from, it's what you're running to. And so it needs to be really important that you don't repeat a mistake because if you're in pain, you need to diagnose it. And the way that I try and help people to think about that problem, and they should obviously explore the market if they're in pain and go out there and find something else if it's the right solution, but they should challenge themselves first. And so I say, the first question I ask is, what's giving you energy and what's taking it away, right? And if you can kind of just do that, you're already going to get 80-20 on this. And that's sort of almost like a self-mentorship point. In my opinion, it's either business, process, or people. And business sort of ties culture as well, right? So is the problem that you're in a place where you are different from everyone else and it feels like you're an island? In which case, maybe you have changed or maybe the business has changed and therefore you should reflect upon that impact in your product work because the product is so tied in, right? A product person today is in the heart and soul of the thing. You can't disconnect them. The other part was on the process. That could actually just be, I am where I get a lot of energy, but the way we work sucks. And actually acknowledging what that is, is a great way of retrospecting change where you want to challenge the business because product people have to do that, right? We're change makers, back to that bias reaction decision-making. And, you know, it's normally in a classic, right? It could be, I can't do anything valuable because I'm stuck doing things that I shouldn't be, like I'm always in meetings. Or it could be, nothing I do ever makes a difference. In which case, maybe there's an issue strategically and you you know you should surface that. Or maybe it's um, actually that I'm making a difference, but I want to make a much bigger difference. And so I want more challenge. That's all just the process around you because you need to feel like you're in the right zone. For people who want to dig deep on this one, there's a really good article from Candor Inc. on superstars and rock stars. And the idea is that any person could either be a superstar or a rock star, but you have three different modes. So you, you can either be in like the ultra high performance mode, or you could be in neutral mode, or you could be in low performance mode. 
And again, looking at the impact of the business and the processes will help you understand if you're in the right place. If you're a superstar, for example, and you are, are in a company that needs you to be in superstar mode, and you're in low performance mode, you're probably in the wrong place. It's not going to feel right. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person or bad at your role. It just means that whatever you're doing, you need to find the right zone. And you'll bounce between this, right? You know, your work and your life affect a lot of that. And then obviously the last one is classic, which is people. So if you're in a lot of pain, you have to ask, is it the business? If it's not the business, if it's not the way we work, is it who I work with? And that gets very subjective and that could be complicated. My advice normally if people say it's a people problem is, have you had a heart to heart with someone? And the answer will always be no. And it's really important to just actually be a human being at work. Back to your point, you know, earlier about that vulnerability, about taking the time to talk. You know, if you've got a mentor, it's a great place to have a conversation on these three arcs. But realistically, if you haven't had the time to have a heart to heart with someone, either you don't care about them enough or you don't respect them enough. And you need to solve that problem because relationships are a two-way street. And in my opinion, in business, it's all just people. So if you do that and it fails, you're with the wrong people. If you do that and it's cathartic and it feels good, then actually that's just the life of working in a business and being in the middle of it, the heart and soul as a product person. So go off and have the heart to hearts and feel better about it. Fantastic advice, James. Thank you. I'm sure that'll be very useful for anyone that, that needs to hear it right now. Sadly, we're at an end. We've got one final question that I just briefly want to pick your brains on, and that's around the state of product in the UK versus the rest of the world. So clearly the US has always been heralded as the go-to place for all things tech and definitely been a a shining light when it comes to product talent over the years. What do you think we can learn from the US and other countries to ensure that the UK stays at the forefront and cutting edge of doing product well? Just to take a step back, like I don't think the human beings in North America are better than the human beings in Europe, right? We are equal. We should all be at the same level of awesome, right? Nothing stops it. But what isn't empowering it, in my opinion, is a difference in terms of how we work. So in Europe and in the UK specifically, we have a delivery mindset. Product management came out of project management because we used to be, and we sort of still are, one of the best places for building huge infrastructure, right? Example, we've got a massive Navy, like huge infrastructure projects, right? As a continent, we're old, we're very established in doing that stuff. Ignore the military example, it's just showing the scale of the thing, right? North America is brand new. By comparison, right, there's always the saying, right, you know, 100 years is not very long in Europe and 100 miles is not very far in the US. And that's because they can't say the former. Because of this, the way that we do product work is very different. So it's going to probably surprise product managers that listen to this and senior product managers that are thinking about it. But the biggest difference is engineering. And therefore, it affects product. In Europe, the way that we normally deliver things, we use the word delivery. I'm honest, right? So we build a roadmap, we come up with some stuff, we plan some sprints, we try and champion the customer a little bit, and then we ask some engineers to build it. In the US, it doesn't work that way. If you were in the West Coast and you tried to do that, the engineers would go straight to HR, say that you are stopping them being able to do what their job is, doing their job for them, and they'd be essentially saying, you don't know how to do products. Because engineers in the US, specifically the West Coast, would come up with all the requirements. They don't want you to tell them what the product is. They want you to be effectively that that guiding light, that champion. They want you to come with problems and like a mission statement of where to get to, and they'll do the product for you. 
right? Because they are self-organizing, they are so invested in the code they write, they're not going to let you decide what that is. They can figure out what's most valuable, right? Example, like in a big tech, like uh, if you were in the West Coast in, in Meta, a product normally starts with a bunch of engineers. And when they're happy, it's good enough, they'll bring a product person in, right? That's just such a step change. And if you were in a large, you know, fast-moving startup in the West Coast, same rules. That's a completely different way of thinking about product, right? Product then is a different gate. It's going, okay, the bar you need to set, you need to go off and learn about these customers because engineers aren't going to do it. You need to get this problem so deeply understood and you need to see the vision of this thing so clearly that you can go to a bunch of people that will self-organize around it and you need to win them over with what's important and they will produce it, right? And then you need to get ahead of them fast enough that this thing can go to the moon. Very, very different way of thinking about it, but you need the right engineering mindsets to make it possible. And this is where the CPO and the CTO can really challenge how you build a company. Fascinating stuff, James. Thank you so much for coming on The Fortunate Mentor and talking to us all things product. Some fantastic mentorship in there for our listeners. Really interesting insights. And it feels like uh, sort of the next decade for product professionals in the UK is going to be a, you know, a super exciting one. So I really hope everyone listening to this will uh, take heed of James's advice and join product communities and find great product mentors. But yeah, thank you again for coming on the pod. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. Before we let you go, I wanted to ask a small favour. This year's Great British Podcast Listener's Choice Award is open for nominations and we would really appreciate your vote for 40 Minute Mentor. So if you have a spare minute today, please head over to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting and nominate 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you so much for voting for us and we're really looking forward to seeing you again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship.